12, we were given stories, teachings, and more warnings. The author threw everything but the kitchen sink at us to motivate us to press on in our faith. And if you put this all together, the book of Hebrews is a theological and pastoral masterpiece. It's long, rich, debated, dense, challenging, comforting, inspiring, and complex all at once. There's nothing else quite like it in the rest of the New Testament. But as we come to the end this morning, the 13th and final chapter, the book of Hebrews starts to resemble some other New Testament letters and gets extremely practical. Chapter 12 wrapped up with some amazing, memorable, and even intimidating words. Chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. By faith in Jesus Christ, we are part of an eternal kingdom that will never pass away. We are in intimate fellowship and right standing with the one, true, utterly breathtaking God of the universe. And as a result, our lives are to be lived with acceptable worship, marked by reverence and awe. But it is worth asking. What exactly does a life of acceptable worship, marked by reverence and awe, really look like? Let's find out together in Hebrews 13. So open up to Hebrews 13, verse 1. Feel free to use a Bible here if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your spirit, your word, and your church. Lord, thank you for these amazing gifts that we simply cannot say thank you enough for. We all have a lot of things to be grateful for, and hopefully we had time over the past week to remember that and express gratitude for that. But, Lord, many of the things that we celebrated this past week can be taken away from us. They can be lost. But, Help us remember that we have treasure, reward, blessing from you that cannot be taken away from us. That moth cannot eat, that rust cannot destroy, and that comes by faith in your Son. So Lord, thank you for who you are, for what you've done for us. Thank you for bringing us here together in this place on this morning to hear from your word. I pray that you would do what we need you to do by the power of your word in our hearts and in our minds this morning. We love you. We thank you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, starting in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, And those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, 
For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will neither leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? At the risk of oversimplifying things, the passage that we just read is exceedingly broad. There is nothing there that doesn't apply to any Christian in any time or in any place. These verses, and really this whole chapter, are chock full of commands and exhortations. Now, the author describes the entire book of Hebrews as a word of exhortation in chapter 13, verse 22. So that shouldn't completely surprise us. But these commands and exhortations in chapter 13 include, verse 1, love your siblings in Christ. The term translated brotherly love was usually reserved for biological family members in the ancient world. But here it applies to believers' relationships with one another. We are a family, brothers and sisters, a body, a household of God that loves one another as such. But you don't just love fellow Christians. Verse 2 says that you show hospitality to strangers. After all, like Abraham in Genesis 18 hosting angels, the person you welcome might be a messenger of God himself. Our love for our fellow believers is special. It's unique, but not at the expense of our love for and our hospitality to strangers. And that includes non-believers. Verse 3 says that we practice solidarity with the suffering. We saw the Hebrews track record of this back in chapter 10, especially when it came to those enduring persecution for their faith, whether it was social, economic or physical. Prayer is one obvious way that we can practice solidarity with the suffering, even from a distance. But we should also be on the lookout for more hands-on, up-close opportunities as well. Another exhortation comes in verse 4. We practice holiness when it comes to sex and marriage. In a world that is incredibly and increasingly confused about these things, Christians and churches can't afford to be hypocritical, wishy-washy, or selective about God's good design and wise guardrails for sex and marriage. If we condemn all the sexual and marital sins of the people out there while turning a blind eye to the ones in here, whether that be through a flippant view of divorce and remarriage, a tolerance of pornography, or the practice of any sex outside of the context of husband and wife, if we don't take those things seriously, then we won't be taken seriously by others. And frankly, we won't deserve to be taken seriously by others. Verse 5 reminds us to practice contentment rather than greed. 
It's worth remembering that the sin of materialism can be just as seductive and just as destructive as any form of sexual immorality. Worldly wealth has just as much potential to pull our eyes away from Christ as any sexual sin does. And through it all, verse 6, we're reminded to trust in God. Now, verse 6 is less of a command or exhortation and more of an assurance. Even in a dark, dying, and fallen world, we have reason for confidence in the God who made it and will ultimately redeem it. You might say that we obey the words of verses 1 through 5 because we believe the words of verse 6. Now, again, in a sense, there's nothing all that noteworthy about this list of commands, exhortations, and reminders. Like we said, they're so broad that they're timeless and universal. But the impact of Christians and churches actually obeying them, that would be nothing short of remarkable. So you might call verses 1 through 6 general exhortations. They apply to us just as well today as they did to the Hebrews who first heard this letter. And sure, our circumstances may be different, but the core content here is just as important and relevant to us as it was to them. Christians are called to live Christianly. Our whole lives are the acceptable worship with reverence and awe that the author talked about at the end of chapter 12. And verses 1 through 6 give us some of the most practical exhortations about what exactly that entails. But with that, let's move ahead to verse 7. We read there. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come through him then. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you. So now that some of those general exhortations have been covered in verses 1 through 6, 
we get more dialed into the audience's original context in verses 7 through 17. If you think back, many of the believers who are hearing these words for the first time were Jewish Christians, discouraged in their faith, some of whom were toying with the idea of going back to their old way of life, if that's what it took to get some relief. So what does the author exhort or command them to do? Verses 7 and 17, they must remember to obey their leaders. The ones mentioned in verse 7 had probably already died. The leaders mentioned in verse 17 were still alive. Now, these verses do not teach blind obedience to church leaders, but they do teach a healthy level of trust. And if the church leaders are living and leading as they should, as godly shepherds who take seriously their responsibility to care for people's souls, then obedience, trust, and even submission shouldn't be that hard. But on top of that, they must stand firm and sound doctrine in verse 9. We saw a similar challenge way back in Hebrews chapter 2, when the author urged them to pay close attention to what they had heard, rather than drift away from it, like a boat that lost its anchor. Chasing after diverse, strange, and innovative teachings won't do you any good in this life or the next. Be anchored in Christ. Stick to what you've already heard. And they must worship in verses 15 and 16. We should notice that this worship isn't limited to shallow words or empty gestures. Acceptable worship with reverence and awe, sacrifices of praise to God, are actions and lives which please him by the power of the Spirit. Now, I don't know about you, but just when you feel like you're about to drown in all of the commands and exhortations of chapter 13, both general and specific, the do's and the don'ts, guess who shows up? Who else? It's the main character of the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ himself. From the beginning of this sermon series, one of the biggest themes that we saw was the greatness, the superiority, the supremacy of Jesus. A phrase that we repeated until we were blue in the face was made up of three simple but profound words. Jesus is better. Bless you. Jesus is better. And before this letter concludes, the author just can't help but give us one final reminder of that truth. Verses 10 through 14, which are highly reminiscent of the most central claims in Hebrews chapters 5 through 10, make it crystal clear that Jesus is better than whatever else these persecuted believers may be tempted to run to. What they might be tempted to cling to. What they might be tempted to look to for relief or comfort or encouragement. Jesus is better. 
And if Jesus is better than anything and everything else, then why would you go back to what you had before you met Christ? You can draw near to God now in a way that you never could before. A sacrifice far better than animals, goats, and bulls has already been offered for you once. You have a lasting city now, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and it's all been accomplished by Jesus. So stand firm. Don't drift away. Don't waver. Now, granted, all of these wonderful privileges do not come without cost. A price has already been paid by Jesus himself. That price being his broken body and shed blood on the cross outside of Jerusalem. And, you know, faithfulness to Christ may cost us something as well. We see that in verse 13, where the author says to bear the same reproach that Jesus endured. Follow in his footsteps. The social, economic, and even physical persecution we've discussed throughout the book of Hebrews may not always be some far-off, hypothetical scenario for us. It's already the reality for many believers in many places and may one day be the reality for us too. Are we ready for that? But we can remember that the rest the promises, the rewards of faithfulness, our better possession, our better country, our better city, inhabited by the better Christ himself, will be more than worth it. Now, there is an interesting statement in verse 8, one that we haven't really dwelt on this morning. We read there, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, other than telling us that Jesus is God, what might those words communicate? Well, look what comes before in verse 7 and look what comes after in verse 9. Leaders come and go. Strange and diverse teachings appear and disappear. And kingdoms, all but one at least, rise and fall. But Jesus remains. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith, as chapter 12 told us. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, as the book of Revelation tells us. And if verse 8 really is true, if Jesus really is God, the same yesterday and today and forever, then all of the commands and exhortations laid down for us in his word must be obeyed. As we read at the end of chapter 12, we must offer Christ acceptable worship with reverence and awe. The Apostle Paul says something similar in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. He tells the believers there to offer their bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God as their act of worship. 
That includes our minds and our decisions, as well as our hearts and our infections. It includes our tongues. It includes our hands. It includes our bodies. It includes our lives. In short, none of our existence is set apart or off limits from the acceptable worship with reverence and awe that we offer our God. It's all-encompassing. And all the commands and exhortations of Hebrews 13, both the general ones in verses 1 through 6 and the more specific ones in verses 7 through 17, give us a practical roadmap. They're all based in Christ, revolve around Christ, glorify Christ, and are in response to Christ. It's all offered in response to who Jesus is and what he has done. So if Jesus really is as great as the book of Hebrews makes him out to be, if we believe that he's the same God yesterday and today and forever, then we are challenged to live like it. Now, sadly, there's a long biblical history of half-hearted, insincere and shallow worship among God's people. Old Testament prophets especially and frequently called out this kind of fraudulent praise. There's a famous passage in Isaiah 29 verses 13 and 14 where God laments that his people draw near to him with their lips while their hearts are far from him. They say the right things. But it's only skin deep. Then we look at a passage like Amos chapter 5, starting in verse 18. God says there, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? God's telling us that the day of the Lord is nothing to look forward to if we don't know and love and worship the Lord. He continues, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Worship is not just jumping through hoops. It's hearts that are close to the Lord. And finally, Micah chapter 6 We famously read God say, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, 
and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. May we refuse to offer God anything less than acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Not just nice words. Not just pretty songs. Not just jumping through hoops. But lives of obedience to his commands and exhortations. Rather than just deep thinking about God, warm feelings for God, empty gestures towards God, or flowery language about God. May we offer him acceptable worship. Which means every part of us. Now, the book of Hebrews ends the same way that many other New Testament letters end. We see a request for prayer, a little bit of logistics, and some kind greetings. But then in verses 20 and 21, there's a beautiful expression of worship. A moving, elaborate, and meaningful doxology. We read there. Now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This long, rich, debated, dense, challenging Comforting, inspiring, and complex letter ends with worship. May the same be true of our time studying it together. May everything that we've learned, discussed, and pondered lead us to obedience and praise. And not just with our mouths, but with our lives. May it lead us to doxology. Namely, acceptable worship with reverence and awe, which is the only worship God deserves. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that Jesus is the star of the show in the book of Hebrews. Everything revolves around him. Everything is said or done in response to him. And that includes our worship. That includes our obedience. That includes praise, whether it's through words or through actions. And Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit, we would learn to obey you. We would learn to praise you. We would learn to love you and serve you with the kind of acceptable worship with reverence and awe that you deserve. Thank you that you are at work making us into the kinds of worshipers who are fitting for your holiness, fitting for your power, fitting for your goodness. And Lord, I pray that you'd continue that good work of sanctifying us, helping us become the people you've declared us to be by your grace, by faith in Jesus Christ. In the week ahead, I pray that we would offer you the acceptable worship that is mentioned at the end of Hebrews 12 and is outlined in some practical ways in chapter 13. I pray that our worship would be more than just 
nice-sounding words, more than empty gestures, more than just something we do on Sunday morning. But I pray that our lives would be acceptable worship. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we thank you. We thank you for the book of Hebrews, the opportunity to study it over the past couple of months. And thank you for the opportunity to celebrate Christmas together in the Sundays ahead. We love you, we thank you, we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.